1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I couldn't be happier to be joined today by Dr. Anna Zeta. She's Associate Professor of History and the Founding Director of the Food Studies Program in the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences at Virginia Tech. She's the author of the 2019 James Beard Award-winning book, Canned, Canned. The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, and she's the co-editor of 2021's Acquired Tastes, Stories About the Origins of Modern Food. She's here today to talk about her latest book. It's called U.S. History in 15 Foods, and it came out on February 9th from Bloomsbury Academic. Dr. Zeta, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you about this book as we have about the others.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, congr- you are my first three time guest. So congr- congratulations <laughs> yes. for that. There's a plaque in the mail you can put up. Um, but it's also noteworthy, if less noteworthy, that you're also, this book inaugurates a new series from Bloomsbury called History in 15. It's, this is the first in, in, in a planned series. Can you tell us about that before we get into this one?
0: Yeah, so I was really happy to be able to write this book uh, as part of this series and help kind of set the foundation for what some of the shape of these books might be. Um, so they're intended to be kind of a crossover academic and public oriented books that take big themes, whether it's you know food history or um, the other two that are um, under contract or a global history of epidemics and an LGBTQ history in fifteen lives. So taking big themes and sort of breaking them down down into digestible chunks, and the 15 largely comes from hoping to make these good teaching resources. So 15 weeks of a semester, the idea that an instructor could assign the the books and it would correspond to the timeline of an average academic um, cycle but also for public audiences or anyone else sort of having um these short chapters that feel like they uh, address a range of different stories all on a, a common theme so um the, this is book is the first we'll see how the others come forward but i think the press is looking for for other installments and proposals for the series if anyone listening would like to propose something
1: and we should specify short sure, we're talking 12 13 14 pages essentially right so it's really yeah. really moves, moves quickly yeah. it's a great
0: that's right. Yeah. Author. Trying to keep them. That was a challenge in this book. <laughs> I, I kept asking for a little few more word count because it, it was hard to do everything that each chapter needed to do um, and maintain this desire for, for you know, short and accessible chapter Like, Yeah,
1: absolutely. And worth it. You know, undergrads are, undergraduates will read it, right? And others as well. So that's, that's great to think about. I mentioned oh. the challenge for you, <laughs> the challenge for these other authors that are lined up here in the series is, of course, selection. And so I'd love to hear you talk a bit about how you... Narrowed yourself down, or worked up to how, whichever direction you went, um, to fifteen. How do you get to fifteen?
0: Yeah, I um, was thinking of going back and digging in some of my notes to think about some of the other foods that fell on the cutting room floor. Because, yeah, kitchen floor. It was, um, I wrote the book in a fairly condensed timeline, but I had written the proposal and came up with a chapter outline several years before that. So probably in 2017 or 18 that I I did the proposal. Um, And that whole summer, I really just spent reading widely to try to think about how to choose these foods. I was was very clear. I kind of begin the introduction by saying, when I say I've written this book, people guess what foods I, I might've chosen. And they're rarely... The ones that I ended up with, um, which is to say they are not kind of classic foods that you would think of as American foods. They're not apple pie. There's no hot dogs in here. Um, and so instead, I tried to think of foods that really embodied a particular moment in American history. And so as much as being a food history book, it's very much a U.S. history book. And I thought a lot about what are the major trends and themes and changes that are happening in different moments in American history? And how might I choose a food that helps me to tell that story? Um, And so, yeah, there was the choice not only of the 15 foods, but then the periodization of trying to tell, to break U.S. history up into 15 chunks that made sense, given the my, my expertise and the kind of areas that I wanted to, to emphasize and going back to pre-colonization, but certainly there's a lot more focus on the um, 20th century and later part of the 19th, um, because of both the rapid scale of change in food in that time, and because of my own training in the, in that time period. So, but I try to, I try to give a nod to the, the first half, so to speak, of the U.S. survey to to understand that, Portion of of the story through
1: food. Now, you're right that there aren't like the Norman Rockwell foods in here. But there are a few chapters that are on foods that typically show up in a U.S. history textbook. Right, there's corn in the colonial era yeah. and thinking about about the early English um, colonization. There's whiskey and the and the so-called whiskey rebellion, certainly in the early republic. There's a, there's a chapter on peanuts, and you often get peanuts showing up with George Washington Carver in a textbook, or maybe Jimmy Carter um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of your selections are, are, are kind of familiar foods, foods we know for the most part, that, that don't show up in textbooks, but turn out to be surprisingly useful at sort of elucidating major currents um, in these different eras of U.S. history uh, that the book is broken up into. and 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 I, and I would echo what you say. The book really works as a U.S. history book for those that don't care about food. I mean, it'd be weird to read this book if you don't care about food, but it works as <laughs> if somebody didn't know U.S. history, this would be a fine place to start. And after 200 pages, they'd have a good primer on the topic. Um, but uh, but one food you write about that kind of straddles that line between the canonical foods that do show up in textbooks and those that don't is maybe graham crackers or uh, more specific, graham, accurately, graham, graham bread, right? right. So yes, yeah, <laughs> S- Sylvester Graham, he often does sneak into um, U.S. surveys to kind of... I don't know, illustrate like the kooky edge of antebellum reform era that spawned more serious movements like abolition or um, temperance, women's um, suffrage. But you really take him seriously. And and so why, why doesn't Graham, why doesn't Graham deserve kind of the earnest treatment you give him, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think I first encountered Sylvester Graham less in a kind of broader U.S. history narrative and more in the history of nutrition or or some of the older food history that kind of snuck into history of medicine, where he, along with many of the other kind of food and dietary reformers of the mostly early but later 19th century, were definitely dismissed as kooks and cranks and, um, you know, had very little to offer and like, Little, you know, anecdotes about the the oddities of this time, um, and I I think I even reading those without knowing the context that well when I first encountered them fifteen years ago, something sat wrong with me about that. It felt like something about their um, kind of um, countercultural or oppositional ideas that they were putting forward felt like they were worth taking seriously in their time because. What it would have taken to kind of come up with these proposals, and why something would have motivated um, these very quirky, uh, you know, dietary practices. Um, and you know, I think that that trend, beyond me, you know, there's been a lot of reconsideration of the Kelloggs and other kind of dietary reformers. And I felt like I, I, that chapter maybe more than others. I feel like the early 19th century was not. A, an era that I had found as fascinating in the past, and I found myself through the telling this Graham story, really uh, loving that era and wanting to study the early 19th century more. Um, and I think reading about him and what he was reacting against and why bread, you know, this Graham bread was this unbolted whole wheat flour, basically at a time when very few people uh, were seeking out whole wheat flour, and in contrast, fine refined white flour was definitely seen as the the modern and and desirable food what it was about whole wheat flour as well as the other dietary practices vegetarianism um you know abstaining from alcohol uh, and other practices that he promoted um what why what it was that those abstentions represented to him about the increasingly fast pace that he was noticing about the country about what he felt like was happening and so you know whether his specific uh, recommendations hold water today in any kind of nutritional sense, which I think is an interesting question, but obviously not, not the most valuable historical one. Um, it seems very clear that he tells us a lot about the moment, and, and in particular about the changing technologies of food production and the way that uh, grain processing and flour milling had come to represent something for him um, that he was not comfortable with in terms of the direction that the nation was taking alongside many other social ills, like you mentioned in abolition and temperance and and other movements of of that period.
1: It's interesting, even if he wasn't like ahead of his time, necessarily, he was very much of his time, as you're saying. Yeah. Many of these recommendations now are kind of standard, you know, FDA fare or, or you know, kind of the, eat more vegetables, eat whole whole grains, drink right. less you know, yeah. temperate alcohol use and things like that. It's funny. That we came around to that. Yeah. So he's, he has the last yeah, laugh, right. I suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think he because he's, you know, no one's really I mean, yeah. students who aren't studying history haven't really ever heard of Graham bread, don't really know of Sylvester Graham, but everyone knows Graham crackers. And so it's also this interesting and kind of easy in to say. There's this guy you know his name from this food and this food, graham crackers specifically have like you know way more sugar <laughs> and are far, far more highly processed than he would have ever promoted so it's it it makes for a good story as a entry point into this character
1: absolutely well when you get us to the progressive era and the turn of the 20th century you choose jello as our guide something else yeah. students would have have resonance with with your, your students um and this ended up working really really well um and it's not that your point is just that there's this weird processed food that shows us that food was getting, you know, weirdly processed at this time. It's, it, yeah, it's yeah. Not, This isn't just about like, oh, industrial capitalism was suddenly on the menu. Instead, you make this convincing case that Jell-O gives us a great vantage point um, to observe the you know, kind of the imperatives and the blind spots of the progressive movement at that time. And so could you, could you take us through that argument a little bit?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Jell-O, I think, is an interesting one because I think for the broader American public, they think of Jell-O as sort of important in American food history, but they usually would anchor it more to the 1950s and right. the mid-20th century post-war moment when, when it did have a kind of revival and obviously legacies that still carry forward today in terms of people have had their grandmother's jello salads (laughs) or other things. And so I sort of like that this instead pushes it to say this tells us not about the 1950s as much as about the turn of the 20th century. And um, maybe more than any other chapter, I really like the way that this one Came together to looking at at the production and consumption sides of things, and using the food to connect those dots. Because um, that chapter tells the story both of why gelatin, why Jello, and its you know ingredient gelatin, um, which comes from animal parts, uh, why it became why there was such a large supply of gelatin at this moment as a consequence of the rise of the meatpacking industry and the rise of cattle culture and a displacement of bison and indigenous peoples and uh the rise of the kind of industrial system that had all these byproducts that then needed to be used somewhere which stimulated you know uh the desire to use this gelatin in various products, including Jell-O. And then how Jell-O becomes this company that really um, works in hand in hand with the rising domestic science movement to sort of promote this lighter, you know, flavored product as a dessert in contrast to the heavy desserts of yore and how they use advertising really intentionally in a kind of early advertising phase to introduce a food that, you know, there, there had been very laborious boiling calf, you know, calf feet to make a gelatin product in the past, but, uh, in a lot of ways it was a new product. And so how do you create a market for a new product? How do you use advertising? How do you make, you know, cold fruit flavored meat parts uh, <laughs> appealing as a, as a dessert? Um, and so, yeah, I thought jello came in to really beautifully connect the dots there. Um, and, um, yeah, Jello. I'll I'll Helen Helen Vate, who's another food historian, recommended Jello for that era. I had had other foods in that space that just weren't quite working, and I kept thinking through what else I could do. And she's a well-known food historian of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and so I I wrote to her and said, <laughs> "What else would work here?" And Jello was her suggestion, and it and it I think it really worked perfectly.
1: It's terrific. And then when you get to the post-war suburbia chapter, it's not Jello you go with, but it's green bean casserole. <laughs> And now, if I can get personal here for a moment, I have it on good authority that this uh, this Thanksgiving staple is a point of contention in your marriage. Would you care to comment, on, you to comment on that? I don't know.
0: It's true. And I dedicate this chapter fully to my partner who uh, asked me if I would write a chapter about green bean casserole. <laughs> and so I did. It's my gift to him. Um, and he gets a lot of credit for me being able to write this book, too. Um, but yes, green bean casserole in our family. And I, and I think it's not an uncommon dynamic that it's a very beloved dish among some members of people's families <laughs> and uh, represents something kind of abhorrent in other dimensions of people's lives. And I think, you know, there are lots of foods like this that are contentious and Thanksgiving, um, like other holidays that brings together different families and different people eating together. I think sometimes highlights these foods that become so... Iconic and memorable on the one hand, and and new and never heard of for others. When I I often ask students around Thanksgiving, who's ever tried green bean casserole? Many have never even Mm -hmm. had it. Many, you know, it's always on the table. Um, And I think there's some regional variation, but it also just seems kind of just idiosyncratic who has or hasn't come to love it. And for a long time, I said to my to my husband, you know, this you don't really like this, right? I mean, it doesn't actually taste good. It's just that you have this memory, this association with it. You'd say, no, no, it's delicious. What are you talking about? And, you know, after many years of it being on our table, I've sort of come to like it. And my kids have sort of come to like it now too. And, um, I felt like that itself was an interesting story in terms of how does a dish like this, that is, um, you know, kind of weird, like a mixture of unexpected canned foods that get mixed together? Um, how does it come to feel like a staple? Um, and why does it elicit also a, a kind of disgust among other parts of you know, society?
1: <laughs> and so it's not our, our <laughs> only this war and in your family, but it's also, I mean, you say this is a Cold War food, right? This is essentially ammunition yes. in the Cold War. I think you say that it becomes a symbolic weapon to show American superiority. Yeah. So how is that?
0: Yeah, so green bean casserole is invented in the, um, in, you know, industrial kitchens, domestic home economics, economics kitchens of of Campbell Soup Company, um, which they have. You know, on-staff home economists who are trying to come up with innovative ways to use Campbell's soup products to put these recipes into promotional booklets and on the backs of cans. Um, And so canned food, the the broader um, food system, the use of home economics and domestic science to create these tools that were supposed to make women's lives easier so they're not having to cook from scratch, all of these tools and technologies and advances and ways of thinking of women's labor we definitely used very strategically in the kind of ideological fight of the Cold War to say, you know, American superiority, the superiority of democracy and capitalism are Embedded and, and evidenced by how free our women are on the one hand to stay home to be able to take care of their children to have an easy meal on the table by dinner time not you know working hard toiling in the factories like the Soviet women uh, in their baggy work work <laughs> uniforms um, and so greening casserole came to sort of stand in at least in my telling for you know all of this kind of technological improvement and the ability to create these homey, comforting casseroles that embodied uh, the kind of domestic space of the of the mid 20th century. And and that domestic space also, you know, the nuclear family and the leave it to beaver kind of motif was also very much um, a part of that Cold War platform.
1: That's great. And you got a chapter here on tofu. But most uh-huh. of the other chapters, um, they're sort of set in the food's golden age, or at least one of the golden ages that the mm-hmm. food had. And in here, the tofu really, you know, tofu in the U.S. really starts taking off in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but you give us sort of a prehistory of, of that tofu going mainstream. And so what was what was what was up with tofu in the, in the earlier period?
0: Yeah. Tofu is an interesting chapter, and I, and I really tried to find something else to use to tell the story because, it, the, as you mentioned, the chronology fits a little less well because, honestly, tofu doesn't – I use it to tell kind of 1960 to 1975, and tofu really only emerges at the end of that period. Um, but, uh, but I felt like the um, the, plat- the foundation and the platform that was laid by the alignment of food and politics and countercultural movements – before tofu's rise is what enabled <clears throat> it to become so popular, and the the seeds of starting to think about foods both kind of of Asian origin and foods that come from protein sources other than meat, and the kind of rise of very small scale shops. Tofu really, not, notably, um, emerged from the work of a, you know a few people who um, both brought knowledge of tofu for production from, um, from Japan and, um, and, of course, there were Japanese and Chinese immigrants who were already making to- tofu here, but much more for their own communities and less of this kind of spreading to broader uh, culture, to to white culture. And um, there, were, there were sort of the acolytes of the tofu movement. William Shirtleff, who um, still runs this amazing soy info center online, um, that learned to make tofu. And he and his partner started just visiting small shops. And and this was also the time of many new cooperative grocery stores and small kind of hippie movement food places and having this network across the country of places where um, Shirtliff could come talk about his book of tofu and talk about the processes and then have places that could source the products and connect to lots of small, small, local communities. It began this kind of seeding venture that built on the backs of this other food movement that had started to spread and the way that food had become politicized through the civil rights movement and through the back to the land movement and environmentalism um, made it possible for tofu to sort of emerge um, and, and spread in this moment of, of, concern about, you know, the way that um, our diets were shaping other cultures abroad or shaping um, the, the environment, how meat consumption was part of a broader problem as the energy crisis begins in the early 70s. So all of these kind of connecting the dots um, through this food that would, would later take off. That's great.
1: You close out the century with two chapters that foreground McDonald's and that might sound kind of obvious, but you do it in all these nuanced ways that are constantly surprising me. Um, and one of the first surprises I had was that I, I'm kind of ashamed I didn't realize how, how central the McNugget was to the popularizing of the chicken nugget, um, which is, again, that's right. not the argument of the chapter, but that's something I took away from that. And I also didn't realize how much the chicken nugget, the, like the... The lifespan of the chicken nugget in American culture is really like it's my life, right? I'm the chicken nugget generation. I didn't realize that it kind of just came around just before I was yes. born. And then I mean I so I didn't yeah. realize when I was eating all these nuggets at McDonald's from my mom when I was five, that it was like yeah. that, that, that these are like there's a new what food. This is a new food I was eating. Yeah. And that's so strange for me to become, you know, obviously becomes this world beater and um and my own children are you know eating so many nuggets. But anyway, that's that's beside <laughs> the point. Anyway, but you use but again, your point is not about nuggets themselves, but about how about the 80s and about how the chicken nuggets in your words. Expressed the values of Reagan era America, the America which I was uh-huh. born and raised in. And so, what, what ways does it does, do? They, do they do that?
0: Yeah, and that it was a surprise for me too. I I chose chicken nuggets before I had the sense, I I kept asking everyone as I wrote it, what do you think came first, the McNugget or the chicken nugget, mm-hmm. you know? And everyone was like, well, the right, chicken right. nugget. And I, I was like, no, no, <laughs> like McNugget in a lot of ways was the creation of, you know, McDonald's had this really central role. You know, there, there, there were other similar products, maybe before. But as far as what we call a chicken nugget with that name mm-hmm. and with the, the particular food technology that's needed to create that product, it was very much a product of the early 80s. And um, yeah, that that chapter, I think, tells so much about the rise of the chicken industry more broadly, the dramatic rise in popularity of chicken that was so promoted by this vision of it as a healthier food in a time of concern about saturated right. fats. And then the kind of irony that the, the form that most Chicken quickly got turned into is this further processed form where it's heavily breaded and and deep fried and refried and reconstituted in fast food or in frozen food, um, which of course negates quite a lot of its healthfulness. Um, and so that kind of sunny sunny projection of what the what chicken could offer, and then the reality both of the kind of health consequences and nutritional. Um, consequences of it, but also what lay beneath the incredible rise of popularity and cheapness of chicken was these um, reductions in regulations for labor and environmental protections that very much characterized the Reagan era um, and the Carter era before it as well, where it was possible to staff these um, factories increasingly with immigrant labor, with very little protection, so that this huge supply of chicken, processed chicken, could be had to turn into these chicken nuggets, and so, um, you know, what it was that was changing about the regulatory structure and the industrial development and labor structure of the '80s that made it possible for us to, you know, have this ubiquitous nugget. That yes, certainly even. By the time we were we were young, even though it had been around only a few years, it felt um, it felt so established. Right. And now, of course, it's like a whole class of food on its own. And um, you know how that came to be so accepted. I I, I use a number of old. Um, mcdonald's ads of, that just introduced the chicken nugget when i teach about this sometimes and they're just kind of amazing this sort of like oh, can you believe <laughs> it there's you know no bone you can dip it the sauces you know all of that it was such a, a kind of remarkable sense of a new product that was gonna take off and indeed, indeed it, did. it did yeah
1: and you bring yeah. us to the present with your final chapter on korean tacos and you look at immigration and social media Um, And you look at that through both not just the development of this food craze that kind of stands in for others, the Korean taco that has these long histories in different cultures, but also the Obama campaign, for instance. And and you also mentioned kind of at one point about kind of this what you might call food revolution that we saw in in kind of in the the end of the first decade of the 21st century and into the next. Um, And by doing so, you're kind of historicizing some of imagine your future readers of this book, people that will be excited about a book that tells U.S. history through food. Um, will will be those that came of age at that time. And so I'm curious, like how both, how you see today's, you know, food activists certainly, but also foodies, right? A different kind of category Um, in our generation. How do they bear the marks of this, of this kind of early Obama-ish, early social media era?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so the Korean taco I find so interesting because when um, Kogi came out, this uh, Los Angeles food truck um, that sort of popularized the Korean taco and helped spread the food truck phenomenon more widely um, when it was first you know, being reviewed in, in restaurants and magazines and other things, there was this clear connection between this Obama era um season of hope the sense of change a next chapter for America where we were headed and this new food ethnic fusion food that had this kind of um, mass appeal and was was bringing together ways of eating that hadn't been seen before and I think that kind of hopefulness very much permeated uh, the early you know 20th 21st century um, food movement as you mentioned the sense of being able to take something delicious and turn it into uh, transformed food uh, Food system, yeah. you know, as with so many early phases of food system, I think it came quickly to be seen how many people were left out of those movements, how how entrenched um, so many of the the processes that had led to to the problematic parts of our food systems were, how much political um, uh, entrenchment made it hard to make changes, how even local efforts. Uh, Ran into all kinds of problems, you know, and I think today, as I've been somewhat historicizing that movement and and teaching a new class on introduction to food studies this semester, I've been talking to my students a lot about how they see the food movement, and they're quite unaware of it, even as they are very aware of the effects it has had, right? So I say, well, how many of you have seen food ads for local food and thought that that was valuable and everyone's hands mm-hmm. goes up. How many of you have thought about alternative meat sources and why we have those everyone hands goes up, you know, local, like how about farmer's markets? How many of you've been to one hands go up. So, you know, how dramatically even in the last decade um, so many of the, you know, the, the goals of the food movement were realized in small ways, in ways that have become tangible and yet how quickly some of the bigger visions got, um, monopolized or pulled into broader industrial efforts, how many um, kind of issues of injustice continue to dominate um, questions about food security and um, but also how much more the conversations about justice, I think are central to conversations about food in a way that they maybe weren't in the beginnings of that, of that food movement. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we're, we're still in a very interesting time and to be able to feel and consider my own engagement with food, um, as a product of that movement, and and how much has changed, and how little has changed, <laughs> um, yeah. is is very watching interesting. the present
1: become the past. It's going to keep happening to us. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. So, right <laughs> I have kind of a half baked uh, pun intended question. Um, where I'm thinking about well, looking back at the, at the at the table of contents, thinking about the whole book here. You know, with one or two exceptions, Americans still eat all of these foods um, that you write mm-hmm. about, and and. But, you know, by contrast, most of us still don't really wear the clothes from all of these eras, uh, or we we don't really read, we don't broadly read a lot of the books from a lot of these eras, or, you know, dance their dances. I guess we do, like, live in the houses and the building, work in the buildings that were built these times. We don't keep building buildings that look like that all the time, whereas we do keep making a lot of these foods in much the same way. And so I'm sort of wondering, um, you know, our foodways evolve, certainly, and your, your book shows that really clearly, but we also retain some for a really long time. And so I wonder, do you think that food offers, like, a unique cultural means through which to connect to history in a way that like we're doing it just the mm-hmm. same way, right? And if so, are, are we actually doing that? And, and, could you know, are we connecting to our past through food? Could we be doing that better? Is there potential here? We're not using it? I don't know really where I'm going here. But um, but what might it look like? I don't know. Take it where you want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting question. Um, for the first time last semester, I uh, incorporated a kind of historical cooking lab huh. into my u.s food history class where we were actually recreating old recipes and talking about them and logistics and other things prevented us from doing it that often but we did it for two two different modules in the course um and it was it was really fascinating because yeah the ingredients were ones i could easily go find at the grocery store today mm-hmm. the recipes themselves still felt quite legible even though one of them was from 1796 from Amelia Simmons American cookery, which was kind of the first American cookbook. Um, and of course it, you know, it, it didn't have the same measurements or temperatures or, you know, we had to, we had to translate it somewhat for the modern kitchen, but I think my students were, um, interested in how accessible it felt like they could go back to this cookbook and still make a lot of the same recipes, which I think speaks in support of at least your idea that, that a lot of these foods stick around, even if the context changes so much. Um, and the way that recreating these recipes, I think, um, it's, you know, we have photographs. We talk a lot, I think, when I teach history about how, how limited our sensory, um, you know, ability to access the past is to kind of the visual, mm. um, because we can't really smell the past. We can't taste the past. I know museums and others have tried to experiment with these kinds of, you know, what did New York city mm-hmm. smell like in, in 1900. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, and, and yes, we can try to taste the past. We can try to cook these old dishes or source ingredients in ways that are come closer, um, to the way that they might've been in the past, but, also recognizing how much the technologies that produce all the ingredients have changed, how breeding efforts have changed the taste of our fruits and vegetables and and meat. Um, all of these things, I think, yeah, give us access to a continuity and also a sense of all the factors that shape how we might be eating the same food, but why it might be something totally different today than it was in the past.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you for clearing that up for me. Um, (laughs) I know historians don't do the future. Um, but so apologize, but, uh, (laughs) Any predictions for the food that would represent the next chapter of U.S. history? Is it going to be cultured meat or dried grasshoppers? Or as we're speaking, we're still waiting to hear from the Department of Defense about aliens. So maybe there's food coming from <laughs> other planets. What do you predict?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Is it? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think so, because I think it helps us to or, or maybe even of the present. You yeah. know, I think even the Korean tacos chapter now feels a bit yeah, dated yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of what it is. And so I've thought about, like, what is the food right now mm-hmm. and how because I've i I'm aware of a lot of these kind of, you know, uh, food trend, food industry trends where they say that the hottest foods of twenty twenty three are gonna be X, Y, and Z. And I find those so interesting because they just kind of say them as fact. And I think, but you know, what's all that lays beneath these predictions? What are these foods intending? Mm. Um and I and I also, in terms of the edible insects you mentioned, I used it that idea in um a chapter I wrote about Uh, in the Acquired Taste book about Marion Harland, who was this, um, you know, kind of domestic advisor who at first didn't like canned foods and then she came to recommend them. And I tried to compare it to like, what if some local, I mean, some current um, food personality started talking about edible insects, what kind of influence that would have into something that most people still find questionable um, as a way to kind of relate to what canned foods might have felt like to a lot of consumers, you know, 120 years ago. Um, And so I do think that thinking about alternative proteins, whether it's insects or cultured meats, is um, such a important and lively conversation at this moment. And I I think it's going to be really valuable to see where it goes. I thought about using both of those actually for the 21st century chapter already as as a way to kind of predict where conversations are headed. Um, And I also think, you know, the ongoing kind of globalization of our food systems and contentiousness of immigration, which is certainly um, discussed in the Korean tacos chapter, will continue to shape the way we think about food in into the near-term future such that ongoing you know new flavor new flavors yeah. so to speak that to uh white american audiences at least um will probably also be central to to the chapters to come yeah, i wonder i was thinking about sort of we're seeing some
1: some tides turning on globalization potentially certainly too soon to say that but um but i was wondering yeah. how that could be reflected with foods but well, we will see if we see it all. Um, I know that the months ahead to will be busy teaching and sharing this book with with lots of readers, and and uh, but I'm sure you're also really eager to pad your appearances, your lead in appearances <laughs> on the show. So, are there other things on the, on the on the back burner that you'll return to when when the when the you have time to? And uh, what what project yeah. might bring you back to us?
0: Um, yeah, I'm working, I have been working for a while on a history of food waste um, project that I kind of set aside while I worked on the U S history and 15 foods. Um, but I am returning to a little bit. I'm working on a chapter of it right now that, looks at dumpster diving and the rise of food not bombs in the 1980s similar period to what we're talking about with chicken nuggets um especially the origins of of food not bombs and the nuclear protest movement against nuclear power um in in the late 70s and early 80s and thinking about how food waste and food salvage and efforts at um you know uh, addressing this enormous problem of food waste alongside ongoing food insecurity and hunger and homelessness um have characterized our our recent a past, um, and I'm also starting for the first time some kind of truly interdisciplinary mm-hmm. projects. I'm working uh, in a food studies program here at Virginia Tech alongside history, and so I'm thinking a lot about how the work, how our historical work, might inform more um, contemporary-focused projects, or social science or ecological science projects. So I'm both interested in connecting the food waste project to ongoing food waste work in other areas. And um, I'm thinking of, I'm working on a small project um, with a colleague in another department about um, food aid and food pantries and kind of stigma associated with those, um, with using or not using those spaces. So thinking about how our historical um, knowledge and experience might actually uh, be able to fit in and support other kinds of research as oh,
1: well. that's totally fascinating and exciting. Thanks for giving us a little sneak preview there, but let's live in the present. Right now, the book again is <laughs> U.S. History in 15 Foods. It's out now from Bloomsbury Academic. Its author is, and my guest has been, Dr. Anna Zeta. Anna, thank you so much for your time and for this book.
0: Thank you, this was fun.